Communication and trust are some of the most important human values that allow us to connect, build relationships, and thrive as a collective unit. But trust as we know it is rapidly changing in the face of a shifting population, the rise of technology, fake news, and external crises. So in a world full of change, who can we trust? We chat with Michelle Hutton, CEO of Australia and Brand Chair Asia-Pacific at Edelman, about the role of communication in our society, and we do a deep dive into the Edelman Trust Barometer, a 20-plus year study that reveals some fascinating insights about the state of trust in society and where it might be headed. From the team at Helix, I'm Tim Mullen. This is the science of us. A podcast about who we are, how we behave, and why. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Helix. www.helix.com At Helix, we help you understand your people, track progress, and stay connected. Check out the website to learn more. Michelle Hutton, welcome to The Science of Us. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very, very good. So you are currently the CEO, uh, Australia and Brand Chair Asia Pacific at Edelman. Um, you've been in the, fil- the field of communications for uh, a number of years, communications and marketing. Uh, I've been lucky enough to share some of those years with you back in the day as we're talking about. Can you tell me what has the experience been like for you getting to, to where you are now? Well, I've actually just celebrated my 10-year anniversary with Edelman, the company that I work for now. So, gosh, I can't believe um, 10 years has flown by. But, you know, as you say, um, I started obviously in this industry when I was very, very young. Um, I've been in the industry um, a long time now. And in that time, I've seen some extraordinary change. I think most of it for the better. And, you know, I say that because communications has really never been more important, I think, for businesses and brands trying to navigate this complex world that we that we find ourselves in, especially now. Yeah, 100 percent. Communication being, I guess, the fabric that connects us together as well. And it's one of those things that if you're if you struggle at communication, so many other things will struggle as a result. We have people on the show that we talk to about uh, developing empathy, emotional intelligence, etc. And communication is obviously that sort of underlying DNA of that, I guess, if you if you call it that. Yeah, I think so too. I think it is something that, pleasingly, a lot of business leaders now put a lot of value in. And, you know, I think boards are increasingly understanding that, you know, managing a brand and managing a reputation now actually go hand in hand and communications sort of underpins how you evolve businesses today as yeah. well. So yeah, it's been a fun ride and it's it's certainly a fun time now. And look, we are going to talk about trust on the show today because I know that Edelman publishes the Trust Barometer, which is very widely read now, which is fantastic. I've sort of watched that develop, particularly over the years that I've been um, I've been aware of it. But before we go on, if we stay on that line of communications a little bit, how have you seen things change at the moment, particularly around the the COVID crisis and how leaders are communicating, how businesses are communicating to their customers? What have you seen as the key changes? I think there's a few things. Um, 
one, interestingly, employees are actually looking to the businesses that they work for for information about the crisis. And I think there's been some great examples of businesses all around the world that have really sort of taken up that charge and have been often filling the void and, Mm. you know, enabling their people to really understand what is happening in their countries around the crisis. So I think there's been this huge focus on employees and pleasingly a lot of companies now sort of understand that more times than not, their people are really looking to them to provide context and facts. I think in this crisis, there's been a there's been a crisis of um, of, of factual information, and mm. you know, more times than not, people have turned to the companies and businesses that they work for to say, "What is going on? Help us yeah. understand what we need to do and need to do differently." So, I think for me, that's been one of the big changes that we've seen over the last few months. Yeah, very interesting shift if uh, if businesses are becoming more of that that focus point from a trust perspective for employees. And, and maybe that brings us on to the to the discussion about trust because trust is one of these other fundamentals of of humankind in terms of how we interact with each other. Looking at the trust barometer, what what is that in terms of what it looks at and specifically what is it measuring when you go out there and do that every year? Yeah, so... We've actually been in, um, looking at trust for the last 20 years. So it's really informed, I think, now our understanding of the importance of trust in not just managing reputations but growing businesses. Yeah. And over the years we've explored four key institutions. So we've looked at business, government, media and NGOs. And Quite simply, we've gone out and spoken to people in countries all around the world and asked them, do they trust those institutions to do the right thing? So we asked them a whole range of different questions. The bulk of the study is based on an online survey. We do do some qualitative work as well. But we talk to not just the mass population or the general population, but Mm -hmm. we also ask, questions of the informed population and that's presented a really interesting picture over the years looking at how those two different segments if you like of the population trust and in some respects don't trust and that's an interesting particular cohort that i do want to revisit because i noticed that when reading your report that this are the two different audiences but if we come back to the 2020 report that you've released now what a What are the main headlines that came out of that this year? I think for Australia, it was fascinating because, you know, we go into market about October, November, each calendar year. And when we saw the data come just after Christmas, of course, we looked at the Australian data and thought, gosh, the Christmas, I know it seems like a long time ago now, considering what's been happening. It does, but, you know, if we think back, you know, the, the, the Christmas that was ours in Australia was such a devastating time. Mm. When you think about, you know, we, we, we come out of that horrible drought season right into the bushfire crisis. So we thought, well, we, we had a hypothesis really that, you know, perhaps that data wasn't in fact um, as up to date as what yeah. it could have been. So we went back into market 
and we asked people more questions just after the bushfire crisis and that was extraordinary because what we found was in january before we went back and validated the new data we looked at the results and what we saw was the highest divide or gap between the informed public and the mass population in australia that we had ever seen in fact the gap between the two different audiences was the biggest gap that we've ever seen in the 20 years that we've been doing this study anywhere in the world meaning that the informed population in Australia were incredibly trusting of all of those institutions versus the mass population who were in fact least trusting. So we look at that trust gap, if you like, between the two. But then when we went back and asked people more questions just after the bushfire crisis, we found that that gap had closed so, so dramatically. Mm. And in fact, what that, um, reduction in gap came from was in fact the informed population whose yeah. trust scores dropped. So suddenly, if you think about and reflect on what happened during that bushfire crisis, when you think about you know government, when you think about media, how everyone was responding to yeah. that crisis, we saw suddenly the informed population who had never been more trusting, really, of those institutions in Australia, suddenly thought very differently. So to take a recap on how you categorize informed population versus the mass. So how do you actually define that so that the people listening to this get a better picture of then who those people actually are? Yeah. We try not to use this phrase, but I'm going to use it because I think it does help illustrate the, the two audiences. Think about it in terms of the haves and the have nots. Mm-hmm. The yep. informed population, you know, tend to be, um, more educated, they tend to be high income earning, and they tend to consume a different type of media. That's yep. probably the easiest way to describe it. Yep. Okay. Interesting. And so if we delve into that in a little bit more detail, as you talked about this this big divide, and maybe it comes back to the fact of these four key target uh, or four key stakeholders, I think, that you measure. So who was the clear winner out of all, all of those from media, business, NGOs and government in terms of where we place our trust? And then maybe we come back to that informed versus mass population. Yeah. Segment. And in fact, what's even been more interesting is we also went and studied what's been happening through the COVID crisis. So things have changed again. So yeah, in, right. in the 20 years that we've been studying trust, I mean, there's never been really a more volatile time when you think about, you know, what's been happening in the world. So when we went into market in Australia, we saw, in fact, trust across the four institutions, were quite it was quite stable. So it was almost an inf- almost a perfect match between the trust scores across those four institutions. Mm. But what we've seen of late, particularly through the COVID crisis, is that Trust in government here in Australia and in most markets around the world has skyrocketed. Mm. So again, I guess if you think about or reflect on, you know, how governments have responded to the crisis, think about what's happened here in Australia. You know, suddenly we've seen trust in government as an institution. We've seen we've seen governments really lean in to help with the crisis, and as a result of that 
more times than not, people are placing more trust than ever mm. in the institution of government. Now, having said that, they're equally putting trust in business because what we're <clears> seeing is the need for businesses and in particular business leaders to step up mm. and really play a role in, as I said earlier, not just helping people understand what's happening with the crisis, but but actually driving action and you know, I think there's been some great examples of companies that have that have virtually recast their their their, their manufacturing lines to mm. produce products and services to help frontline workers. You know, we've seen companies and brands responding through a purpose-led uh, approach to really think about how they can be contributing to this crisis, how they can help rebuild communities what they can be doing to help families help at a grassroots level. So, yeah, the picture of trust over the last few months has been volatile, but I think really interesting to think about how people are responding in this crisis to companies that understand the value in leaning in and helping rebuild communities. And I think that's something we've witnessed with governments, a lot of what you've seen in the commentary, particularly towards the end of last year, uh, as climate change took a very front stage uh, in terms of the, the whole population, you know, people like Greta Thunberg looking at what what things should be done. And I think that's where, to your point, businesses stepped up because governments were often seen as the people that weren't stepping up and, and didn't want to step up. And I think a further point to that, look, governments have have probably, it's interesting to see the volatility you talk about because with the bushfire crisis, I know that the government here in Australia was particularly criticised about their lacklustre approach. I mean, obviously the PM wasn't even in the country, etc. I mean, all of that stuff is, is, is done now. But it's been very interesting to see how the opinion polls, particularly for government and for Scott Morrison, have dramatically changed since the pandemic crisis. Uh, he was, you know, everyone was, I guess, berating him and slating him from from what happened with the bushfires but now as you say everyone's turning to the government saying that they've done a good job and it probably comes to the fact that the numbers are showing really positive signs as well and i think that we've had very strong state leadership that has maybe spurred on the national government as well to help all be this one cohesive structure so did you notice a difference from when we i know you sort of said those three different periods what was the difference like from the bushfire to COVID, particularly if you look at the australian government as a, a specific example yeah, I mean, look, I think there's no doubt that the federal government learnt from the bushfire crisis and learnt perhaps how not to respond and communicate. And I think pleasingly they have responded very differently in this current crisis. There's no two ways about it. But I also think, you know, we only have to look over the ditch to, you know, perhaps look at another political leader and, you know, see how... New Zealand has responded to this crisis because mm. I think if you look at it from a communications perspective, I think New Zealand is top of the pops. You know, they yeah. have from the get-go communicated incredibly clearly to all stakeholders around what the different phases of lockdown would be and equally what the different phases of releasing the restrictions would be. And I think... Um, you know, Jacinta clearly has some great communications advisors around her and I think they've done an extraordinary job because 
most people in New Zealand have understood at all times where they where, where, where they were on the crisis curve and, you know, more importantly, what their individual role and contribution should be as a result of that. I don't think we were quite there. I think, you know, your point about states is an important one because, yes, in our federated model, you know, obviously mm. the states took the responsibility as they should and as they do now. But I think that infighting amongst the states certainly hasn't helped in clarity of message you know, if you think about the different restrictions that were announced and then now going into the release of those restrictions, you sort of scratch your head some days to think, hang on a minute, yeah. you know, how many people can I have in my house? And is today the day my kid goes to school or not go to school? I mean, it's been, it's been a little confusing yes. to say the least. <laughs> it has been. There have been, uh, I, I think, a number of memes and videos that I've seen being sent around where it's like, you can do this except in this situation in this situation, but you can also do this except in that situation. It's like, again, where people are just like, I'm not exactly sure what I should be doing. But from a from a government perspective, and you mentioned Jacinta Ardern, which has, she's, you know, gathered such global praise for a lot of what she's done, which, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an admirer of, of hers from, from here. Does the level of trust that is placed in a specific government get determined by the specific leader that they have at that time uh, or is it a broader piece you mentioned again there are states there are national etc how much does personality come into it when people look at placing trust in government look i think it comes in a lot but you know one of the really interesting and and potentially uh concerning findings that we that we made in this year's trust barometer was this underlying sense of fear and uncertainty that we see across a lot of the Western uh, capital capitalism markets, if you like, you know, there, there, there seems to be this groundswell of, of concern. And you only need to look at perhaps some of the elections of late to see the rise of populism and populist leaders and the, Trust, I think, has certainly been an underlying theme in all of those elections. And, you know, as I say, more times than not, people are actually really fearful. People are fearful of their jobs. People are fearful about future prosperity. And, in fact, in this year's trust barometer, we were quite alarmed with some of the data points around that. You know, people said to us this year that, they were more concerned than they had ever been about their future prosperity for themselves and their families. Now, you know, think about Australia, you know, the lucky country. I mean, up until this pandemic, you know, our, our, our GDP numbers were still on, mm. on the rise, you know, our, our yeah. housing uh, bubble still exists. I mean, there's, there's, there's been a lot of very positive economic news coming out of this country. Yeah. However, there's this really interesting dynamic between that and how people really feel. It's, it's this extraordinary time. And I think this crisis that we're currently all facing has only shone a light on that even more. So I yeah. think it, when we go back to market in the next few months and ask people these questions again, it's going to be extraordinary to see 
what impact this crisis has had on trust. And so it's interesting you mentioned about the fear there. So they were feeling this fear before we even went into this crisis now. Is there anything that's changed since you did a couple of those additional questions to people since COVID? Like, as it because again, like fear is pretty much it's pretty apparent. I mean, you can almost see it, smell it, touch it at the moment because of global economies and what's going on there. So, if it is the fact that, and I think you talked about there was a theme about fear eclipsing hope because of this capitalism piece. Like, what, what, what do you think will happen next based on what you've sort of seen in the twenty twenty report? My prediction is it will be worse. Hmm. Yeah. As frightening as that is, um, I suspect that trust globally will dip. Yeah. I think people will be increasingly fearful about their their job security. I think that there'll be a rise in automation across a number of different sectors. Yeah. And I think that people will be really concerned about their their future prosperity. I think, you know, the share market doing what it's doing at the moment, as volatile as it still is, I think people are really concerned about their long-term future. I think people who are getting close to retirement are suddenly thinking, wow, you know, my, my retirement years look very different. What's the government going to do to help me? I think you've got still this, in particularly in Australia, this frightening underemployment. You know, we really mm. just don't know yet the full impact of this crisis. I think the health crisis we're trying to, or, or we're probably closer to understanding, but yeah. not the secondary health crisis that probably will start to hit, right? Thinking about, you know, whether it be through mental health or perhaps some of the secondary health issues that are bound to come as a result of what we've been through. So, yeah, my prediction is it's going to be um, perhaps a pretty bleak uh, trust barometer launch come January next next year. Yeah, definitely will be very interesting to see. And I think let's come back to a point you made, which is around capitalism. So, at the, at the moment, from what we're seeing, the, the role of inequality is now very much... I mean, this has been a big problem for a lot of countries uh, for a long time. And I saw that this was a, a specific point that came up in your report. And humans seem to have always struggled with this, how do we create equality? Um, and, you know, we're seeing right now in the US an example of that really coming to life from the, this years and years of, of all of this terrible stuff happening. And it's... Um, I mean, and it's, it's, it's a bit depressing, really, when you think about that we still... We still have to grapple with all of these issues across the world. So what in terms of that inequality, is this something that you think is also affecting the views on capitalism and therefore is it at risk? Because people just don't feel like there is equality across. If you look at, obviously, we're, I've mentioning some, some of the stuff about race, but you've got it across economics as well. People like this sort of gender gap, the wage gap, everything gap seems to be existing. So is all of that playing into why capitalism might be at risk? It, it absolutely is. But I think the flip side of that is there's an opportunity. You know, mm. when we look at trust, particularly in business, but across all of the different institutions, what we've learned over the years is that competence and ethics are the two main drivers of trust building. And, you know, here in Australia, what was surprising and equally concerning was that there was no one institution here that was seen as both competent and ethical. Mm. 
pretty alarming. Yeah, just a little bit, yeah. So, you know, you've got businesses who typically people say, look, we think you're very competent in what you do, the goods and services that yeah. you provide to us. You're very competent in doing that. Are you ethical? Mm, we think you can be doing a better job. Mm. Versus government, for example, where, you know, people generally say, look, we think, we think you're ethical because there's great governance in a country like ours. And, you know, if you, if you overstep the mark, we'll be pretty quick to, to, um, to call you on it. But are you competent? Mm. Sometimes perhaps not as competent as what you need to be. Yeah. So if you think about that framing and if you think about trust building, you know, if, if, if you're a business leader today, what, what can you do to be seen to be more ethical? And I think that this crisis provides a great opportunity for leaders in Australia to really step up and find their voice and to, to share a point of view and to drive a conversation and to get some real change happening in this country around reconciliation and around some of the diversity challenges that you faced. I mean, I think there are some great examples of leaders here who have been prepared to do that over the years, mm. but you know, what a great result, I think, of this crisis if, if, if generally across the board, you know, leaders stepped up and were bold yeah. and brave enough to put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we believe in as a business and as a leader, this is what I'm committing to, for the people yeah. that, I, that, that work for me and our customers. And I think that that's the point, isn't it? Because a lot of what I've seen talked about recently is there's a difference between people just putting the brand messaging out there and people who actually act on what they're saying and they show true true action and true progress with it's not just an empty blank statement to make sure that you seem to be on on message it's actually about what are you going to do to show me that that's actually something that you'll follow through on not just talk about yeah and what's interesting is that most people today when we ask them about purpose and we go a little deeper into companies and brands that they think are purposeful more times than not people say it's to your point it's about the action and i think that this is also an area where media needs to step up as an institution you know media in australia i think has an obligation to share the stories around how not just government but how businesses in australia are innovating and mm, yeah. are doing some wonderful initiatives to help people I, I think that I think they should be held to account. I think you know me media in Australia should be more open to sharing the good stories because totally. there are some brilliant examples, I think, of you know businesses here that are doing some great things around climate, particularly through this crisis, companies that are going over and above to help communities. You know let's let's share those stories. We should be celebrating celebrating that in Australia. It's so true. And I think something that happened particularly at the beginning of the crisis was, and I think it's still happening now, but a lot of people felt so much fear and anxiety being created from negative headline after negative headline after negative headline that it was sort of a lot of people just started saying, I could, you could see this from a lot of influencers saying, just turn off the news. Like it's that's the way that you probably need to deal with it is to turn off the news because even with the numbers, the way that they were being reported, 
while it might have been factual, it didn't actually show the full picture where it didn't take into account often the recovery that was seen there and uh, and everything else that came along with it. So it was this kind of it was this kind of picture that painted of, of the most dismal outlook of everything. And because of just this sort of saturation the entire time, people really struggle with that in the sense that if I'm just seeing the, the same negative external prompt coming to me over and over again, it is going to weigh on my overall mood, but I'm already at a time of feeling anxious as a result. I think the other thing that we've seen, particularly from a media side of things, is there's a there's the ongoing debate between you know true versus fake news, and that's something that's that I think Donald Trump in particular has um, has popularized, and there's definitely growing scrutiny, you know, on a lot of these social platforms to say you've got to do something about this work that you're doing, and I think we've seen some positive moves by Snapchat, Twitter. Um, but there are also the behemoths like Facebook that still seem to sit on the sidelines and don't want to take part in that. So what is your take on the role of fake versus real news? Well, let's just take, call it fake news and how susceptible we are to actually fake information. Yeah. Look, unfortunately, it is still a concern. And I think today people are, people are more educated and they are turning to more trusted media outlets I mean, interestingly, in this year's Trust Barometer research, we saw a real spike in people returning to the more traditional mastheads. You know, they were seeking out more trusted mastheads saying, I trust you to give me the facts. And that's been a huge shift because over the last, let's say, three, four, five years, we saw people going to more digital news platforms Uh, whether it be, you know, social platforms or, as you say, influencers and others to get information. But now people are reverting back to the more traditional media outlets, many of whom are obviously on digital platforms now, right? So the whole media ecosystem has changed fundamentally. So, you know, finding the truth in some respects has become a little easier because now I think people as consumers of news, we're more informed Mm. and we're questioning more today. But, you know, to answer your question, I do think that the digital platforms have a big responsibility and they need to smarten up before perhaps they're regulated to do so. And that role of maybe staying on that, that line of technology as well, what do you think the role of technology has been in terms of the pace of change that we're seeing and the impact that that has on trust? Because it's all kind of interconnected with the fake news that can come out and how fast that can now spread. So did you cover anything in the Trust Barometer that looked at the, the pace of change when it comes to technology and how that's affecting trust? Yeah, we've been tracking that now for the last few years. And each year, people tell us all around the world that they're becoming even more concerned about the pace of innovation you know interestingly people say look we 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 want innovation we believe in it we value it but it's coming too fast Mm. it needs to slow down yeah and you know there's another interesting point around privacy when it comes to all things digital and you know what we found over the last few years is that people people have been saying to us Look, we don't mind if businesses, brands, and media, for that matter, have our data. Like we're not we're not worried about that as long as we know what or how that data is being used. And you know, the flip side of that is 
the more people and companies can be transparent around what they're, how they're collecting people's information mm. and what they're doing with that information, the more people are willing to give it. Yeah. You know, there's this really interesting shift towards data for good. And, yeah. you know, I think there's a great opportunity for not just tech companies, but all businesses to think about, you know, what is their data footprint and how could they be putting that to great use, whether it be yeah. to solve health issues like the one that we're in now yeah. or, you know, other sort of economic or, or, or social crises. I think this concept of data for good is a really interesting and untapped opportunity. And on that note, because I think what that also refers to is fairness in terms of what businesses do. And I know another one of the, the findings of the report was it looked at competence versus fairness, specifically when it was relating to businesses. That was sort of something that caught my eye. And I think it showed, if I got that correct, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it revealed that respondents thought businesses were competent, yet they also thought that they were unfair at the same time. Firstly, I mean, so what, what does that really then tell you in terms of, even though we're going to business, I think the point you made at the very beginning was employees are trusting their, their businesses to, for more information. But what does that mean in terms of competence versus fairness? I think people understand competence. Leaders tend to understand competence. Do leaders understand ethics would mm. be the question. So it's back to the ethical question. It's back to the ethical question. And, you know, it's understanding the, the cultural nuance and the context piece around not just communications, but all things business. You know, mm. leaders really need to understand the role and importance of being ethical to drive a more fair society. Yeah. I mean, the obligation that I think businesses in Australia now have around driving a more equitable, equitable nation is, mm. is extraordinary, but what a great opportunity for businesses to think differently about what their obligations are, not just to their shareholders, but to the communities that they serve. Yeah. I think that would be an interesting development as we go on as well, because I know that came up uh, last year as well. And I think that uh, I've now completely forgotten his name, but the very well-known investment banker publishing um, his regular yearly note about the fact that we need to be looking for more than just shareholders and it actually needs to look at, yeah, what does a longer term future of a business look like? And there are many other examples of businesses out there like Patagonia, for instance, who very much believe in this sort of sustainable 100 plus year business that it's not about just looking after your shareholders, it's actually looking after every part of the supply chain, employees, every, every part of the system. Uh, that it's involved in another interesting sort of now reminding me about private businesses but i know that it sort of showed there that trust had fallen uh, across all sectors in business but family business was one of the most trusted type of businesses why is that why would a family business be more trusted over a, a publicly listed company more times than not it's because they put their people first and yep. they put the interests of their customers second mm. so they're not uh they're not dictating to uh to wall street yeah you know, they're, they're they're answering to to the people that matter most to them which more times than not are the people 
that work for them and the communities that they serve. It's almost uh, relating to the ethical point before. It's, it's it's sort of like the more private you are, the more ethics you see, you seem to have um, as it goes up. Well, I know we covered a lot of ground. I think that there was probably one one key question I was interested in asking just to close it out, which comes back to government as being the the most trusted, as you said right now. Do you think that they have, it's a big question, uh, do you think that they have what it takes to create a bright outlook uh, for future generations based on where we are now? Because there's a lot of other stuff that still is going on with climate change, which seems to have been pushed to the side. And I know there are a lot of activists out there saying, do not forget about this. This is still a large issue while we all focus on ourselves fundamentally than anything else. So does government have the capacity to take us into a brighter future or is it a responsibility that is now shared with businesses and other stakeholders as well? Big question. But I'd I'll like to ask it. them. <laughs> I think the key is in partnerships. I don't think any one institution can go it alone and do it alone. And I think the more that we see partnerships across all of those institutions, government, uh, business, media and NGOs, the better we will all be. Well, it's definitely going to be a very interesting probably year, couple of years. So it'd be great to maybe touch base again when you you run your next, uh, next barometer to see how things have changed. But Michelle... Thank you so much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Really interesting insights to go through for, for all of our listeners. We will provide a link to that trust barometer so you can have a look. But uh, for now, Michelle, thank you for coming on the show. Great. Thanks, Tim. That's it for this episode of The Science of Us. If you'd like to learn more about Michelle Hutton, Edelman, or the Edelman Trust Barometer, check out the show website. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on Apple or Spotify. We do appreciate it. This show is proudly brought to you by Helix. www.helix.com At Helix, we give you access to real-time insights on your people so you can stay ahead of the issues that can affect performance. We help simplify one-on-ones and enable smarter collaboration. We'll see you next time on The Science of Us.